Where in the world will you find Lamborghini police cars? Whoa! <laughs> and how did African elephants lead to the demise of Vikings in Greenland? Well, you got me. <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity with fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. Well, Lamborghinis as police cars? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying, baby. And you know wow. you know what those sell for? Oh, over $100,000, I think. Uh, try one million four. Oh, my God. Some, I, some of the new ones. Holy yeah. cow. I wonder if that's what my nephew will get for the one he just rebuilt, <laughs> his retirement fund. But okay, anyway. So is this in Beverly Hills, possibly? Uh, no. Nope. is it in no. Monaco? Monaco, that's what I'm thinking, where Princess Grace was. Yeah. The big gambling mecca. Yeah. Well, Bob, no, it's Dubai. Oh, of, of course. course. Dubai seriously loves its police force and displays it by making sure cops get to ride in style with the latest models of Austin Martins, Ferraris, and Lamborghinis. Jeez. Which it says here are priced at $1.7 million. Holy cow. So anyway, to top off the cops' life in Dubai, the crime rate is extremely low. Well, if you chop off people's hands, they stop doing they're, things. They're, it is very <laughs> severe punishment. It's the kind of place where luxury cars are often abandoned by common citizens because if you miss car payments, you you're imprisoned. Oh, dear God. <laughs> if you miss any payments, if you're in debt, you get thrown in prison. Very David Copperfield. Oh. And, uh, of course, so can premarital sex wind you in uh, prison. So just keep that in mind if you're thinking Dubai is total nirvana. No, I guess not. <laughs> just because they have cool cars. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, it's kind of hard to outrace a Lamborghini when somebody's oh chasing after you. I, That's I, amazing. It's like one to a hundred in two seconds. Jeez. Okay, Marcia, how did African elephants lead to the demise of Vikings in Greenland? Well, you know, that's a thing I ponder regularly, and I'm very curious to hear the answer. Let me guess. Let me guess. The demise of elephants... Say it again. Say it again. How did African elephants lead to the demise of Vikings in Greenland? This um, is a story of global trade. So it was had something to do with ivory trade? That's exactly what it was. And uh, they couldn't get it anymore, and then they didn't have the money, and they couldn't be Vikings of the world? Well, here's how it goes, okay? okay. So in the year 983, you remember that, don't you? <laughs> the Vikings from Iceland, led by Eric the Red, or Leif Erikson, traveled 900 miles, and they settled in a new place called Greenland. And for 300 years, they farmed and fished and raised cattle and hunted animals there. But there were two things Greenland didn't have, timber for building and iron for metal. So Greenland Vikings had to trade with Europe for those things. They uh -huh. had to trade for metal and timber. But what else did they trade? Exotic Arctic animals, and ivory. That became one of their major products. And archaeologists who once assumed Vikings in Greenland were primarily farmers now believe that first and foremost they were ivory hunters. Oh, really? Where did they get the ivory? There were no elephants there. Well, I don't know. 
Walrus Ivory was oh. their big product. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. It was one of the most prized commodities of medieval Europe. It was used for sword hilts and game pieces and for sacramental objects in churches. And the Vikings, with their ships and their far-flung trading networks, they monopolized the ivory trade. And scientists now believe that after hunting walruses to extinction huh. in Iceland, they went to Greenland and they found large herds there. And that's why they actually went to Greenland, they believe. And they found walrus artifacts everywhere that have been excavated from Greenland. No kidding. Yeah, their ivory trade was incredibly profitable. There's a 1327 document recording the shipment of a single boatload of tusks to Bergen, Norway. That one boatload with tusks from 260 walruses was worth more than six years' worth of woolen cloth sent to the king by Icelandic farmers. Interesting trade. Do you have any idea what the walrus population is today? Is it an endangered species? Don't know. But I'm sure at the time, they probably hunted uh, they, it almost to extinction. I was going to say. So where did elephants come in? Well, things went swimmingly for 300 years. And then it was a perfect storm in the 13th century that doomed the Vikings. Because first came climate change. And that led to longer, harsher winters, which shrank the time they could go out in boats and so forth uh -huh. to hunt for the uh, uh -huh. walruses. Second, the market for walrus ivory collapsed because Portugal and other countries started to open trade routes with Africa. And ivory from African elephants flowed into Europe, and that was far higher quality than the walrus ivory. Then came the Black Death. And then almost <laughs> it's all, always something. all the trade kind of stopped. Then everything collapsed for the Vikings in Greenland, and they left. Where did they go? They went back to Iceland, or they went back to Norway. Okay, all right. They said they probably could have survived one of those calamities separately, but all three of them, climate change, globalization, and the ivory trade, and a pandemic, were pretty fatal. Wow, so, that sounds familiar. What, what year was that again? About? Well, it, it all ended in the 14th century. Yeah. That's when the Viking settlements were vacant. Yeah. But they were there for 300 years. So that's how African elephants led to the demise of Vikings in Greenland. Doesn't it make you realize how intricate trade was? We think globalization is the past 30 years, but yeah. no, no, no. There's been global trade going on for ever in yeah. this world. Yeah. Well, Bob, last week, do you remember I told you about the world's first coin-operated vending machine? Right. In the first century. And there was holy water and, at and dispensed. And it dispensed holy water yes. for a fee. <laughs> for a fee. Of course. Okay. But let's update that and see if you can guess, Bob, what unusual item a vending machine in Dubai currently dispenses? It must be rubies or gold or diamonds. It is. Diamonds. I bet you can get diamonds in nope. a vending machine. Rubies? No. Nope. Gold? Yeah. <laughs> gold. You can get gold in a vending machine in Dubai. 24 karat gold. Wow. You put in your cash or credit card and out pops 24 karat gold. Jeez. <laughs> Isn't that nuts? It is. And since the price of gold is always fluctuating, the computer in the machine keeps prices constantly updated. Of course. The machine is so popular it has to be reloaded every week. The gold is dispensed in many forms, including uh, gold bars and wearable jewelry. And well, just a minute. Let me stop you there. You mean the machine? You mean the vending machine yeah. has to be restocked every week? Twice a week. Because gold is coming out of that thing? People are buying so much gold they yeah. have to go? Oh, yeah. my they God. They put in their credit card or cash. That's a little different. Different than our town. <laughs> <laughs> and 
it dispenses it in various forms like gold bars or wearable jewelry, of which course. is always nice. Honey, go out and get me a 24-karat gold necklace. Oh, dear. This is the part that surprises me. Dubai was the first to do this, but right now many other countries such as Germany, Australia, and Switzerland have decided to place more than 500 gold vending machines across their countries in railroad stations, airports, and shopping malls. That's just amazing. I, I had no idea. I couldn't believe all these other countries were doing it, which means we're not too far behind. So we'll get a vending machine in our little town here in Wisconsin with gold someday soon? In Cedarburg, absolutely. <laughs> okay. What That'll you... be interesting to yeah. see. Oh, my God. Okay, so put your geography cap on now. We've done our history cap. We've my done our, cap. our car cap. Not and... my favorite cap. Okay. Geography. Which U.S. state's entire coastline is a national monument? Now, think about that entire coastline, because I'm going to give you some tricky suggestions here. Is it Florida? Is it Michigan? Is it Louisiana? Is it Maine, Alaska, or California? I would say Alaska. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like it's a no. Let's say that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say that, Bob. What about Michigan now? Isn't that an interesting one with the Great Lakes all around it? Couldn't that be a national monument? I sense. Let me get, Let me second guess. I'll say Michigan, Bob. No, Marcia, you're wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now what? what's their third choice? Trickery, trickery. <laughs> so it's not Alaska, it's not Michigan, it's one of the other states. Florida or what's the other? Florida, Alaska, California, Maine, Louisiana, Michigan. I'll say California. That's it, Marsh. Very good. Because of all its regulation, you <laughs> better believe they Well, that has nothing that. to do with it, actually. But the entire coast of California, that's 1,100 miles yeah. from Mexico to Oregon, is a protected ecosystem thanks to a 2000 proclamation by President Bill Clinton. And it's not just the beaches and the shoreline. The California Coastal National Monument extends 12 nautical miles basically to the horizon from the shore. Oh, really? The whole continental shelf, islands, cliffs, rocks, reefs, shoreline, and anything above the high tide line, they're all part of the monument. And when you think about it, that's a pretty diverse wildlife. Uh, you know, you got the, you got your normal fish, you got your seabirds, you got seals, you got sea lions. So that's why it was designated as a unique ecosystem, ensuring that it remains that way for years to come. So California, when you're on the beach, you're at a national monument, no matter where you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? Oh, Say it's interesting, Marsha. It, it is very Pretend interesting. Pretend that it's interesting it to you. It is so interesting. Bob, did we cover this before? What was the original name of Air Force One? It was called, um, let's see, Sacred Cow. Yeah, we no, must have had this No, before. I think I read that recently, too. That was what they called it in FDR's time. Yeah. The it, Sacred Cow. Well, yeah, it was a plane specifically designed for Franklin to meet his needs for international travel and his wheelchair, although it was officially named the Flying White House. Yes, and the White House press corps began calling the aircraft the Sacred Cow, uh, <laughs> a name inspired by its heavy security that was dedicated to keeping the plane and its passengers safe. So they kind of said, oh, it's the Sacred Cow. But Air Force One was its call sign, and it was first used to identify the presidential airplane in 1953. Oh, really? Okay. When the Air Force was booming there. And the term became the official designation in 1962. So it was the call sign for the plane was Air Force One. And then the, everybody thought, well, that's kind of cool. Let's yeah. Well, it is be. a great term. Yes. And let me tell you something about the sacred cow. Yeah. You didn't know this. <laughs> your son and your husband were on that plane. 
You were? Yes, we when? were. But down in the uh, Air Force Museum at uh, Dayton, Ohio. They have it there. Oh, really? And you can you know go up the stairs and climb right up inside of it. That's why you knew. Yeah. I'll be darned. Sacred cow. Okay. Okay. Okay, here's a couple of uh, factoids. How many phones are on the modern Air Force One? How many phones? Yeah, 85. Wow, those are basically hardwired phones, but they're in the air. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if, can you use your cell phone up there? That'd be interesting. I didn't it? ask. Probably have Wi-Fi. Total number of floors on Air Force One? Three. That's correct. Okay. And the cost to operate it by the hour? $177,843 an hour. Per hour. Yeah, so you wow. don't use it for fluff, baby. No, you don't. And uh, we've covered this before. There's two of them out there, Air right. Force One. And if, if the president is in the plane, that's Air Force One at the time. But there's two identical planes. And the president is not in the plane. It's not called Air it's Force called One. It's called Boeing 747. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's specially outfitted. So. Oh, it's and very special. Very electronically hardened to uh, oh my God, all kinds stand, of stuff. Like we talked about nuclear forces and all that. We all learned that pretty much when George Bush was up there. Remember during 911 that yeah. day? Remember they yeah. kept the plane in the air for a while because they didn't know if it was safe to land yeah. anywhere could, for yeah. the president. Did they, uh, did they refuel it while he was up there? I don't know how they did and he it. He kept saying, bring me down, bring me down. They kept saying, we don't know what's going on. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. That was probably the only plane flying for a while. It was. I, somebody said it flew over Iowa. That's right. It was Susie Wilkinson yeah. saw it. Yeah. And uh, it was chilling. She said they looked up and everything was quiet. No planes in the sky, but they saw Air Force One overhead. That would be something you would remember yes, 30 years, 20 life. years later, yeah. right? Okay, Marcia, you've heard of Robinson Crusoe. I have. The story, and he was living on an island, right? Mm-hmm. So... Robinson Crusoe Island. Where is that? What country does it belong to? And I'll give you choices. Oh, that's very kind. Of course, I'm, I'm always kind to you, you know, giving you these choices and opportunities and you don't give any of <laughs> Barbados, Argentina, Chile, Belize, or the United States? I forgot the question. Robinson Crusoe <laughs> oh. Island belongs to which country? <laughs> Barbados, Argentina, Chile, or Belize? Where did the story take place? I think it was on a... Like a Tahitian island or something, no? Yeah. Actually, the story took place in the Caribbean, uh-huh. but the island is off the coast of Chile. Oh, really? The real island, yeah. I didn't know that. Robinson Crusoe Island exists in real life. It's also called Desert Island, the deserted Chilean isle. It's the second largest in the Juan Fernandez Archipelago in the South Pacific. It's thought to be the inspiration for Daniel Defoe's novel. It actually did serve as the accidental home for a real-life Scottish Royal Navy officer, Alexander Selkirk. That's the story it was based on, his tale. He was marooned on this uninhabited island for four years in the early 18th century. So we're talking the 1700s. And like Robinson Crusoe, he adapted to nature, hunting, farming, the island's resources. And then when the rescues arrived there, he aided them by capturing goats to feed the people suffering from scurvy on the ship. Huh. Okay. Uh, we were there, you know. Where? Robinson Crusoe Island? Uh-huh. Down yeah. in the South Pacific? Disney World. Oh, well, that's a different place. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> Kids loved it, too. Yeah, that was good. But the Chilean government officially renamed the island Robinson Crusoe Island in 1966. Okay. But it was never called that before. Yes. Okay, Bob, what is an enigmaologist? Enigmaologist? Uh-huh. Somebody who, somebody who looks into things that are hard to explain. Something that's a real puzzle. It's a person who studies puzzles. Relatively new word it is, making its way into all the dictionaries, slowly. 
and it's typically used in referring to New York Times puzzle editor Will Shorts. Ah. <laughs> so that's so uh, he's an enigma enigma enigmaologist. That's yes. not easy to say. Yes, and I do uh, a couple of those NYT puzzles and. Oh, New York Times puzzles, yeah. He's a freak. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, I've got a song about a singer, a story about a, a singer. A song about a singer? A song about a singer, here it is. A singer, um, a popular singer? A popular singer, yeah. much in the news lately. This singer, reportedly, still has to sleep with a nightlight because, as a youngster, rats used to yeah. skitter across the floor mm. in her family's two-room shack. Uh, Who is she? Oh, jeez, two-room shack. Now, she's fantastically wealthy today. today. Is it like Beyonce? No. No. Um, is it like uh, Dolly Parton? That's who it is. Yeah. <laughs> Dolly Parton. At least that's what the story is. She was born and raised in a two-room shack in the Great Smoky Mountains, and she was the fourth of 12 children raised by a farm and labor family. And she said her memory of rats running across the floor at night was so vivid that she could only sleep with a nightlight on oh. years later. Oh, Dolly, Dolly. She began writing songs at seven. And uh, she met her future husband just 24 hours after stepping off the bus in Nashville in a laundromat. Really? Isn't that interesting? <gasps> wow. Now, there's another story about this. When she was a kid, kids at school locked her in a dark closet and wouldn't let her out. And that led to a fear of the darkness. <laughs> she says, it's amazing how kids can be cruel without knowing that they are. She wrote that in her 2020 book, okay. Song Teller. So one or the other. She still has a nightlight, and I'm sure it's one of the best money can buy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. This is Bob and Marcia Smith. You're listening to The Off-Ramp. We'll be back in just a moment. Oh. We're back. We're <laughs> <laughs> this is Bob and Marcia Smith, and you're listening to The Off-Ramp. We do this every week for the Cedarburg Public Library in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. They have an internet radio station. After that, we put it on podcast platforms, and it goes around the world. And we have a lot of folks listening to us that are friends and family, and we want to say, hi, everybody. Hi. Come on over for dinner. There you go. Only joking. <laughs> okay, Marsha, what was your question? Well, Bob, what president was nominated for the office without his knowledge? Oh, really? <laughs> Somebody was nominated without knowing about it. Uh -huh. Was this one of the early presidents before Lincoln? Yes, of course. Was it uh, John Tyler? No. Was it, uh, I'm thinking of Andrew Jackson. No. Okay, who was it? It was Zachary Taylor. At the 1848 Whig Party Convention, delegates nominated former military general Zachary Taylor as their candidate for president. Mm. And he was eventually elected to the position. However, Taylor wasn't present at the convention and was nominated without his prior knowledge. Nobody told him. <laughs> he didn't find out about it for several weeks, as he initially refused to pay postage on a letter sent his way alerting him of the news. <laughs> I mean, my God. This, how, how cheap can you be? I was going to say. This guy, well, I guess he's good for fiscal responsibility, but uh, he didn't want to pay postage. Well, and some I think in those days, didn't you have to pay the postage when you got the mails? I guess so. Some of the letters you had so to pay for So he had no idea that he was nominated. I'm not going to pay for that. About it. <laughs> From Washington, what, what could that be? That can't be important. <laughs> I love it. From this us. party I don't want to belong to. How important could that be? <laughs> okay. All right, Marsha, I have a... White House question for okay. you. How many weddings have been in the White House? Now I'll give you numbers. All right. One, mm -hmm. seven, 12, two, 19. How many weddings have there been in the White House? And not all of them involve the president. No, no, I know. Or Some their of the kids. family. Or their family. Yeah. Oh, well, that can't. Okay, I'll say seven. Well, I would have thought that too. There have been 19, according to the whitehousehistory.org website. 
19 documented weddings hosted by a president and or first lady. The first was in 1812, and that was when the sister of Dolly Madison married Supreme Court Associate Justice Thomas Dodd. So it wasn't even a president or a vice president. It was a family member. Eight years later, the daughter of President James Monroe and First Lady Elizabeth Monroe married Samuel Governor. So that's another family member. And the third one was also just a family thing. John Adams II, the son of President John Adams, and his fiancée got married. That was 1828. And then in 1832, relatives of Andrew Jackson got married in the White House. So there's like the first four weddings were just like, oh, yeah, we got a big place. Come over here and do the wedding. I was going to say, it's a family perk, right? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, well, you know, uncle's got the White House. Let's do it there. It's cheap. (laughs) It's free. Also in Andrew Jackson's administration, the White House wedding had neither spouse related by blood to the first family. Who was it? It was the first of three weddings known as Friends of the Family White House Weddings. So, again, it was just like a perk of knowing the president. But that's the story of the first five or six weddings in the White House. Hardly any family. Okay. So, Bob, you're not at my beck and call, are you, dear? Yeah, I think you'd like me to be, but (laughs) (laughs) I have been at times, yes. It means to be standing by, ready to respond to me immediately. (laughs) That's right. But did you ever wonder where that expression comes from, beck and call? Beck and call. What the hell's a beck? That's a good question. And call. No, it's what the heck is a beck. Oh, what the heck is (laughs) Is a a beck. beck. Does this go back to Shakespeare or something like that? Beck and call? No. Okay, does it go back to before that time? I don't know. It doesn't give me a year. Okay, tell me the answer. It's the expression comes from the rules of servitude. When a beck was a silent single, like a nod of the head or a hand gesture to summon your servant. Oh, really? So you just nod and they better show up. Yes, and if that failed... The master or mistress would have to resort to a verbal call. Oh, they'd have to call them. Oh, the humanity. Oh, my God. (laughs) All the effort they had to put into it. Oh, so it's a beck, a little nod, or a call. Hey, get your butt over here. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. So I'm at your beck and call. That's where that comes Uh from. That's pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. Wow, and so is this bit of trivia. (laughs) Back to White House weddings. Who was the only U.S. president who was married in the White House? That wedding was in 1886. Only one U.S. president ever got married in the White House. I don't know of the my 19 presidents. weggings in the White House, okay. only one involved a president. president. 18, I should know that. Is it? This guy married a very young woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know uh, the story, but I can't remember the president. You tell me. Paul. Grover Cleveland. Grover. Yes, he married Frances Folsom, and he was 30 years older than her. He was 49, she was 21, and she was, remember, a friend of the family. She was like the daughter of one of his best friends. And then after his best friend yeah. died, he helped raise her, yeah, gave her money. Yeah, that's right. It was like an adopted daughter, which seemed a little Cringy, cringy well, when you I look at it. I think he did that so she'd have money. And I don't think they were every officially man and wife. You know? Oh, I don't know, Marsh. We'll yeah? have to find out from other people. Okay, fine. All right, Bob. Here's something to ponder. Okay. What do a head of broccoli, a queen and chair leg a dog bowl, and an old license plate have in common. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That sounds like something in our garage, actually, is what that that sounds like. Isn't that weird? Wow. They Uh, all have some commonality. So the thing that is the weird part there is the leg of the Queen Anne chair or table. I thought the broccoli was the weird part, Uh, but okay. Yeah, broccoli's everywhere. But, you know, (laughs) you don't get Queen Anne legs very often. So, you know, it sounds like a 19th century... Scavenger hunt. Yeah, scavenger hunt. That's what it it sounds like. Yeah. Okay, but what is it? Okay, but you'll like this, and it makes perfect sense. Okay. They're all rejected Monopoly playing tokens. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) The ones that didn't make the cut. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Yeah, broccoli for 200. Yeah. (laughs) 
Do not pass go. Do not pass the dog bowl. Yeah. Okay. What's the other one? What's the Queen Anne thing? That's a Queen Anne chair leg. How, so, how, how could that be on a Monopoly? Well, it's just board. a little a little pewter piece. You well, know. So you know how it is. It's a little bent thing. Very strange. But the game itself goes back to the 1930s. And one game expert concludes that the tokens they finally use break down into rich and poor, like the game. Oh. The rich being the top hat, the car, and the dog. The mm-hmm. dog looks like uh, the terrier Asta from that oh, Thin, Thin Man, Man. series. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And then the thimble, wheelbarrow, old shoe, and iron were all possessions or tools of the poor. Okay, that makes sense. So that uh, it does make sense. Do you have one that you always go to when you're playing Monopoly? I haven't played Monopoly in years. I, I can't know. remember that much and, about it. And the I'm game. sure you hated it because it's a long game. That's what I hated about it. <laughs> yes, okay. It took so long. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to go back to that wedding of Grover Cleveland. Uh-huh. Well, they were concerned about that because it, they were worried about the reputation and everything a little bit there. So they had a very small wedding. Yeah. They only had uh, 31 people there. So that sounds like a tiny little wedding and uh, quiet. Except? Except? Except John Philip Sousa's orchestra played. <laughs> So that can't be quiet, right? Okay, which president had two daughters, both married in the White House? Johnson's girls weren't married there, were they? One both. of them was. Yeah, but not both. I thought both of them were, but no, one of them was. So only one of them. Uh, so this was before LBJ. Yeah, yeah. This president had two daughters and a niece to wed in the White House. I don't know. Was it Eisenhower had David? Uh, did he have two daughters? I know. Tell me. Woodrow Wilson. Okay. Francis Bowes Sayre was married to Jesse Woodrow Wilson in uh, 1913. And then in 1914, Eleanor Randolph Wilson got married. And you said LBJ. Yes, the only daughter that got married there was Linda Bird Johnson. She married there in 1967. Did and she then, fly uh, out of the nest? The, she flew out of the <laughs> nest. And then Tricia Nixon got married in 1971. In the 21st century, Marcia, there have been two White House weddings. The first was another Friends of the Family ceremony, and that was the White House photographer. Oh, okay. Pete Souza. He married Patty Lease in 2013. Now, the second wedding of the 21st century was November 2022. Who got married in the White House? That's got to be Biden's family. Yes. Uh, His niece or something? His granddaughter. Oh. Naomi Biden married Peter Neal on the South Lawn, November 19, 2022. Oh, that had to be a thrill. Those are just some of the 19 documented weddings in the White House. Okay. I think it's fascinating that so many of them let their friends camp. Yeah, you can have the wedding here. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We got the use of this big place. Well, the size of uh, bridal parties now, you need a house like the White House to accommodate everybody. You still have taxpayers supporting that building. It just doesn't seem right to me. It's, It's family. Okay. Uh, maybe they do pay for everything all the way down the they line. They may, they may. Yeah, including extra time for the, you know, the wait staff and all that. Just for the entertainment value, I'd like to suspect they don't. <laughs> okay, before my quotes to end the show, why are police vans called paddy wagons? Hmm, this probably goes back to England, doesn't it? Maybe. A guy named Paddy Chayefsky or something? Paddy uh, <laughs> Sort of threw him in the wagon, so he's Paddy... <laughs> Hmm. No, I don't know why they call them paddy wagons. It's more like the UK. But paddy wagon is a slur against the common Irish name Patrick. 
Did oh. you? Patty is a diminutive form. Oh, for little, Patrick. little Patrick is Patty. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Back in the day when Irish people were considered the lowest in the social order of things, and when police wanted to appear to crack down on crime, they would go out and fill their wagons with Patricks or Patties. Oh, that's great. That's that, a bit that, of facts there. That became Patty Wagon. Yeah. Hmm. There's just any poor Patrick out there, any Irish guy, <laughs> there's a Patty. And here's a quote from Seth Godin. Instead of wondering when your next vacation is, maybe you should set up a life you don't need to escape from. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I like that. And this one is unknown, but I like it a lot. A fallen leaf is nothing more than a summer's wave goodbye. Well, and we're (laughs) starting to see that, aren't we? Yeah, it's just around the corner. Summer's wave goodbye. Bye-bye. All right. We're going to wave goodbye for a week or so here, and then we'll be back again later. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we invite you to go to our website and give us any comments about the show at theofframp.show. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.